Good morning. If you want to turn uh, to the book of Philemon, that's our text for today. You can find Philemon tucked between Titus and Hebrews, but don't blink when you're turning the pages or you might just go past it completely. Though it is brief in its length, it is more precious than gold for our growth and our freedom as brothers and sisters in Christ. R.C. Sproul once lectured on the tyranny of the weaker brother. It is a great lecture that's helped me in church life, and I highly commend it to you to watch if you get the opportunity. In it, he deals with the stronger brothers and sisters as sort of a side issue, but his main focus is on the weaker brother in the lives of believers. Today, our text is the opposite of that. I believe it leads us to focus on the stronger brother or sister, the mature Christian's effect on our growth, and hopefully we can really help each other's grow in this journey together by studying this. Though possibly the weaker brother is inherently part of this story, uh, we'll see that it nowhere in the Scripture is the nobility of the Apostle Paul's character as a stronger brother and his approach to helping a fellow brother to grow in grace more vividly illustrated than it is in his pleading on behalf of a runaway slave. Yes, a runaway slave. If we're going to deal with this text, we must start with the harsh reality of slavery because it is a condition of the text. Some have made slavery the main focus to one extreme or the other. People have twisted and used this epistle as some sort of proof text to defend their side of the slavery debate. Now, the Bible teaches a lot about the act of enslaving another person, but this is not the primary text for that. In fact, from his sermon on Ephesians chapter 6, John Calvin makes the following assertions about slavery. And I'll, parapha- I'll paraphrase it for brevity and hopefully for clarity as well. Calvin said, From original sin, one evil begets another until descended into confusion. However, when we examine the rights of the, that the so-called masters had, every time, without exception, it is completely contrary to the whole order of nature. If all humans carry Imago Dei, or the image of God, and they do, then it is a terrible excess beyond words that a person who carries that image would be put to such an insulting condition. But such are the fruits of original sin, inherited from our first father, Adam. It resulted in all things being turned upside down. Keep that idea in mind as we progress today. The fruits of original sin have resulted in all things being turned upside down. As I mentioned, the Bible has plenty to say both directly and indirectly about slavery, and that's comforting to to us to know that most abolitionists were abolitionists because they understood the Scriptures, most notably the doctrine of Imago Dei. It's clear that the effectual work of the gospel is that the hearts, hearts and minds are reformed individually, and those regenerated hearts and minds, in turn, by the ordinary means of grace, spread that transformation to entire families, communities, and nations through the proclamation of the gospel. But so many, so many people 
get this idea wrong. They, the church was never designed to be a political movement. That's not the end goal of the church. But as hearts and minds are changed, it certainly has an effect on political policy, as it should. It is no accident that in nations where Christianity spread and took firm hold, that slavery was brought to an end through the efforts of Christians. But as we deal with our text today, though slavery is a condition and an element that exists in this text, we must start our time by recognizing that the topic of slavery is not the primary focus in this particular letter. Today, the reason that we hear this text rarely exposited, I think, I'm convinced, that it has to be related to the fact that the topic of slavery makes us all uncomfortable. And not only that, as I mentioned before, historically, people have misused that particular text to teach things that it does not teach on the topic of slavery. But again, once again, I want you to keep in mind those closing words from that quote of Calvin as we progress today, that the fruits of original sin have resulted in all things being turned upside down. Now, before we read our text this morning, let me focus a little bit on the context and introduce you to the main characters that are mentioned in the text, and then I'll briefly outline some of the theological themes that we'll deal with. We know, or at least most of us know, the Apostle Paul, once a persecutor of Christians, his heart was regenerated by God in dramatic fashion on the road to Damascus, and then he was called to be an apostle and inspired to write 50% of the books, about 50% of the books of the New Testament, including this gem that's before us today. Philemon, it is clear, was a convert under Paul's ministry, and he's clearly serving in ministry himself. In fact, the church meets in his house. The name Philemon means loving or affectionate in the Greek. Aphia is most likely Philemon's wife. Arhipos is most likely Philemon's son, and since he is listed as a fellow soldier, we can safely infer from the text that he also is involved in service at his church. Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave in the Roman Empire, whose laws regarding slavery are as terrible as you might expect them to be. They were considered, slaves in the Roman Empire were considered to be human implement or tools or devices, nothing more than tools or devices in the hands of their owner or their master. But Onesimus' name means useful. And some of it, some people have asserted that he was probably born into slavery and given that name to be useful. Since the eyes of the Roman Empire did not value Onesimus, he did as many of us might have done in the same situation, and he took to his heels and he ran. And where better to hide than the metropolis of Rome, which was the natural destination for a runaway slave. In the throngs of the crowds, there he could sink into anonymity. But as J.B. Lightfoot wrote in his commentary on Philemon, at Rome, the Apostle Paul spread his net for Onesimus, and there Onesimus was caught in its meshes. So the main theological themes that we'll deal with in this text, I think, are threefold. First being forgiveness. As we have been forgiven, we must also extend forgiveness. 
Number two, equality of the believers in Christ. No matter what hierarchies or social roles exist, there is a spiritual equality in believers in Christ. The third, Christian community. This letter really shows us as Christians how to live out our faith in the context of a relationship with other believers. Now that we've been introduced to the characters and some of the context, rise to your feet and let's read our text for today. Philemon, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Arhapas, our, sold, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that in sharing, the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me and to you. I, send, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to, ke to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not only be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted, you, parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow, co -work, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are building your church here at Life Point in San Angelo, Texas. We are grateful that Pastor Jay and Sarah have some time away. I pray that you would bring them back safely to us. And Lord, though this text is brief, 
because it finds its ultimate inspiration in you, we could never hope to squeeze all of the implications or truths that it holds in our limited time that we have here this morning. We ask for your grace as your word is proclaimed this morning that you would direct my words as an ordinary means of your grace to your people. I thank you for the awesome and heavy opportunity and I pray that you would add your blessing to the proclamation of your word this morning. It is only in Christ's Christ's name that we are even able to approach and pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's reason together on what this text presents to us for our growth in grace and truth. So much of the Bible follows big names that we're familiar with. But this letter to Philemon shows the Christian drama of forgiveness being played out by ordinary people who would be unknown to us except for their inclusion in the biblical canon. And, the, and whose experiences echo the gospel story of alienation and reconciliation. As many have said, this letter is personal, but it's not private. If, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, and of course that is true, then we know that our God meant this for us to grow from reading and meditating on these precious words physically carried into ancient Turkey by a runaway slave written by a former persecutor of Christians, now an aging apostle, addressed to a former slave master who are all now brothers in Christ. So let me propose a couple of questions. What are the implications of this letter? What did the law of Christ demand from each of these men as they grew in grace and truth? And what does the law of Christ demand from us today? Think on those questions and turn if you would. And I know this is a lot of verses. I know we're not used to it because we can stay in one verse for six months. (laughs) We're going to have about 50 verses today. So we got through 25 of them. There's some more coming. Romans chapter 12, if you would. In verse 9, Paul pins the marks of a true Christian, but let's start back in verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more of himself or of of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, 
The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads in zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. All those marks of a Christian that we just read, they all fall in line right under that beginning of verse 9. Let love be genuine. When you outdo, outdo one another in showing honor, you're letting your love be genuine. When you're not sluggish in your zeal for Christ, you're letting your love be genuine. When you're serving the Lord, when you're rejoicing in hope, when you're patient in tribulation, when you're constant in prayer, you're letting your love be genuine. When you contribute to the needs of the saints, when you show hospitality, when you bless those who curse you, when you cry with those who are crying, you are letting your love be genuine. When you live in peace and harmony with one another, you're not letting those little irritations eat away at you, and you are letting your love be genuine. When you associate with the lowly, you're letting your love be genuine. So, not only the, apostle, the epistle of the Romans, but also by the time of this letter to Philemon, the, by the time it was addressed, um, Paul had addressed the, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And he demonstrated the importance of declaring the whole counsel of God. This tells us today that we are always better served by knowing how the entirety of the Bible speaks on any given topic. Now, these precepts were certainly part of Paul's systematic theology. And in this letter to Philemon, Paul is trusting that the word sent and proclaimed is already accomplishing its good work and purpose in the life of his brothers. So Paul does something that seems utterly foolish by human reasoning, and he decides to not only send the letter, but to have it carried by the runaway slave himself, Onesimus, sending him back to his former master. And I think this also speaks to Onesimus' character, that he accepts the task, that he trusts the heart of Paul, and he trusts the work of the Holy Spirit in Philemon. This whole letter harkens back to that second verse of Romans 12 as it flies in the face of human reasoning. From a secular perspective, if you desired the freedom of your friend, you would never send him back to the hands of his former master. But remember that phrase from Calvin, the fruit of original sin has resulted in all things being turned upside down. 
So the secular perspective is not the Christian perspective. It's not God's perspective. And Onesimus, from a purely secular standpoint, would never go. But Paul and Onesimus' minds have been renewed. They have trusted that God is working things to their good and to his glory, not only in their actions, but also in the response of their brother in Christ, Philemon. And Paul's systematic framework bears itself out fully in the way that this letter is orchestrated. He lives out the marks that he has pinned years earlier as the marks of a true Christian. Paul's love is genuine. Even though Paul knows that Philemon is the one who has the legal authority to determine the fate of Onesimus, it is important to notice how Paul increases the list of recipients beyond just Philemon himself. Paul includes Sophia, Archippus, and the rest of the church meeting in the house. Why do you think that is? I think it's that in widening the recipients, Paul is thereby holding Philemon accountable to others, and this will help Philemon to make the right decision and to submit to Christ. Paul is trusting in the efficacy of the church of Jesus Christ. His love is genuine, and he simply doesn't throw Philemon at the foot of the law or a command. He chooses not to compel him. In honoring Philemon as a brother and entrusting the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, Paul points Philemon not to rote action, not to a mercenary response, but to the glory of Christ. He trusts and commends that the love that he has witnessed in his brother will bring about this forgiveness, this freedom. In verses 4 through 7, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of everything, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He says that he has received joy and comfort Knowing the ministry through the life and in the house of his brother Philemon is effectual because the gospel is present. Christ is at the center. The saints are refreshed, and they can only truly be refreshed in the power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying his people, including Philemon, and Paul trusts the Spirit's work in the church. Then, In verse 8, Paul admits that he could compel Philemon to do what is required by Christ. But Paul is actively demonstrating this genuine love for his brother that he goes on in verse 9 to say, Yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. So Paul is older. Paul is more mature in the faith. He is wiser. He serves Christ from prison. He comes alongside of his brother Philemon, and he points him to Jesus. 
He is practicing what he has preached so many years earlier in Romans. And he is letting his love for Philemon be genuine. In verse 10, he gets to the subject of his appeal. His child in the faith, Onesimus, who somehow was converted by by the gospel through Paul's proclamation of it. Incidentally, this seems to have happened probably during Paul's house arrest in Rome. He appeals unselfishly for Onesimus. He is letting his love be genuine for his brother. Then Paul engages in a little bit of wordplay that you might not notice on the surface if you're just reading it in English, unfortunately. But it is pretty evident in the Greek. He says Onesimus, whose name literally means useful in Greek, was formerly useless to Philemon. But now he's indeed, he is indeed living up to that name for them both. Again, we have walked through Calvin's assertion that original sin resulted in all things being turned upside down. And Paul's words in Romans 12.2 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ. In this upside-down world, in the carnality of the human mind, they would have thought that a slave is useful. But in Paul's wordplay, he reminds us. He reminds Philemon, this world is an upside-down world. And he says, what you, you need to think about this from an eternal perspective. Onesimus was formerly useless to you, but now returned not as a slave, but as a brother, he will be useful to both of us. It's interesting because you can make the same sort of wordplay with the name Philemon. Formerly, in the position of so-called master, Onesimus probably didn't view him as affectionate, which is what his name meant. To Onesimus, Philemon probably didn't live up to his name. But again, finally, that brotherly love or affection will be part of their relationship in their lives together in the body of Christ. They'll both live up to their names. Paul understands the stakes are high, and he confirms the gravity in verse 12 when he writes, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. What a statement. Clearly what Paul is saying is that he would suffer heartbreak if Onesimus was mistreated. And he goes on in verse 13 to say that he would have been glad to have just kept Onesimus there to serve him in the gospel service. But he also recognizes this as an opportunity for Philemon's growth. So Paul relents and doesn't want to do anything without the consent of his brother. Why? Why does Paul prefer Philemon's consent? Paul understands that sanctification and compulsion would be at odds here. Paul wants Philemon's love toward Onesimus to be genuine as well. Paul is hoping for his brother, hoping for Philemon's sanctification, hoping that this goodness shown would be a Philemon's own accord. Paul's demonstrated love for both Onesimus, who he calls his own heart, and Philemon, who he calls his partner in the gospel, is genuine. In verse 15, Paul 
then points again to an eternal perspective. He says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. Now we're getting to the crux of the issue. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 that their relationship is changed in Christ. Onesimus would no longer be a bondservant to Philemon. He is a slave to men no more. Now he is a beloved brother in Christ. Paul has already found joy in knowing them both as individually as brothers in Christ. And Paul wants them both to find that same joy in each other. Now, consensus holds that Colossians and Philemon were written right about the same time. And the church that met in Philemon's house was located in the city of Colossae. I don't know which was written first, but I think there's, there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that the following verses from Colossians 3 could not even have been written without Onesimus and Philemon come into Paul's mind since it was at the same time. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. I think we have it on the screen. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of all these things, uh, on account of all these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and after the image of its creator. And finally, verse 11. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here, in Christ, there is no slave. There is Nobody was free before Christ. They might have thought they were, again, from in an upside-down world, but they weren't free. They were slaves to their sin. So here, in Christ, there is no slave or free, but we look to Christ, who is all in all. Now, going on in his letter to Philemon, Paul says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of owing me even your own self. Here, Paul sets himself as the guarantee of all of his brother's debt. What a statement. What an example to imitate. Paul loves them both genuinely. That Philemon should receive a runaway slave as he would an apostle himself. That's crazy by human reason. It's an amazing statement that throws the secular order of the day into disarray. And it turns this upside-down world back right-side up. In verses 20 through 21, Paul says that, he, that what he had asked of Philemon would benefit Paul in the Lord. It would refresh his heart in Christ. 
Paul says that he is confident of Philemon's obedience to Christ, knowing already that Philemon would do more than Paul is requesting. So we have this testimony before us of exemplified love and honor of fellow brothers in extreme, extreme circumstances. How much easier is it to let our love be genuine in our context here at LifePoint? How do we let our love be genuine? Well, we, we ask questions like, how are you when we see somebody in the morning? But we don't listen even for the response. It's mostly just talk and words to fill the emptiness. We need to care about the other person that we are asking and listen carefully to a response. What happens when you see your brother what happens when you say, see your brother not living up to the standards of Christ? Oh, maybe it's not outright sin or openly sinful. Maybe they just never offer to the church body any of their time, money, or their talent. Well, you could compel them. You could command them. Or by Paul, like Paul's example, you could encourage them to look to Jesus to look to Christ. Brian Chapel rightly said, We sin not because we do not love Christ at all, but because we don't love Him above all. We can throw our brothers and sisters at the foot of the law, and we can live, leave them there, confronted with their own sin and in despair. But if we only do that, we don't love them. We don't love them well. We must help them see that Christ is altogether lovely. Let me be clear, the law is good. Nobody come out of here telling Jay next week, Brian's an antinomian. The law is good, and it is useful, and it certainly exposes our sin. And I'm an advocate of our preaching and teaching, always having both the law and the gospel present. But in light of Christ's work, we must rightly use the law, which means the gospel is always presented. Martin Luther once wrote, Hence, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between law and gospel, him place at the head and call him a doctor of Holy Scripture. Well, Luther must have just read Philemon. Luther must have been thinking of this example of Paul. J. Gresham Machen wrote, A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most net pressing need of the hour. A low view of the law brings legalism always into religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker of grace. Pray that the high view may prevail. So what I'm saying is the law doesn't kill our sin. It exposes it. Loving Christ more than we love our sin, that's what kills it. The problem that I see too many times in churches that I've been a part of is reminiscent about, uh, of what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on Moses' seat. How they would tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. The Pharisees were great at adding to the law. 
the things that were just the traditions of men. In the same way, unfortunately, I have seen well-meaning people, well-meaning people, turn preferences into new laws. Maybe someone doesn't like a particular style of music, and so now that preference of music has become the ideal and the best way to worship God in song. They don't think for a minute that it is God who is building His church, and He has given us to each other. And as we serve and use our talents together, it might not always perfectly align with your preferences, and that's okay. Or perhaps I see someone utilizing technology and they're reading a Bible on a tablet or a phone, and I tell them, Christians carry a physical Bible. I've made a preference into a law, and I've begun to think lesser of that person and more of myself. I personally love hymns, even a cappella hymns. And I love the smell of a leather Bible. I love books. I love reading them on paper. But my preferences can never be forged into new laws for Christ's servants. From a biblical perspective, we simply do not have that right. In Romans chapter 14, Paul deals with the matters of conscience. And he has this great quote in verse 4. He writes, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, Paul knows this. He exemplifies it so well. And even though he could throw Philemon at the foot of the law, and he could leave him there, he doesn't. Though he could command... He doesn't. Paul trusts the work of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification in his brothers, and he points them to this life in Christ. So, I asked three questions when we started our time this morning. What are the implications of this letter? Well, though it is short, the implications of this letter cannot be overstated. God took the real estate in His revealed Word to make sure that this was included. So, because of that, we know that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. One of the areas that the church needs to grow is our mutual affection for each other, how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. My second question was, what did the law of Christ demand from each of these men as they grew in grace and truth? Paul writes this instruction in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul exemplified this so well. He trusts the Spirit's work in, work in sanctifying his brothers. He holds them both accountable to Christ, bearing their burdens toward their reconciliation in Christ. My third question, what does the law of Christ demand of us? 
Well, of course, the law of Christ doesn't change. Those who are more mature in their walk should restore in gentleness those who are in transgression. In gentleness. Gentleness. While at the same time keeping watch over our own lives and our own doctrine, we have to know each other. To really know each other. To care enough to know each other before we can ever fulfill the law of Christ. This takes time in a busy, distracted world where we spend so much time chasing the vanities of materialism. We must invest our time in each other for our mutual growth in Christ. In some ways, that's not easy. Certainly, it's not natural, especially if you're introverted. But in light of eternity and understanding this weight of glory, we have to love one another genuinely. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. The standard is Christ, not my fickle feelings. As Christ has loved us, so we are to love one another. So, in this letter, we've learned that the true permanent freedom for not only the slave, not only the so-called master, but the former persecutor of Christians, the apostle himself, is found only in Christ. And what do we do with our relationships at LifePoint? Well, what we do matters for eternity. So, let's hold each other accountable in Christ, for sure. But like Paul, let us show deference and honor to one another and encourage them in what is good in Christ. Let's let our love be genuine. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Holy God, You are good. Your love for us is overwhelming. Your law is good, and it says, do this. Your gospel is good, and through Christ's work, thank God we hear it is done. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect obedience to the law. Thanks for taking my sins and my brother and sister's sins to the cross. Thanks that it was for freedom that you set us free. That we are free to love each other and in love call each other to your standard. And when our desires to turn our preferences into new laws sneak up, Lord, I pray that you would crush them. Help us to trust in your work of sanctification in the lives of each other and in ourselves. Though we be different and diverse as brothers, the Apostle Paul, the former slave owner Philemon, and the former slave Onesimus, bind us together as your children and let our love for each other be genuine. 